Section 13 of What is Property? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. What is Property? An Inquiry into the Principle of Right and of Government by Pierre Joseph Proudhon. Translated by Benjamin R. Tucker. Chapter 4 part one that property is impossible the last resort of proprietors the overwhelming argument whose invincible potency reassures them is that in their opinion equality of conditions is impossible equality of conditions is a chimera they cry with a knowing air distribute wealth equally today tomorrow this equality will have vanished to this hackneyed objection which they repeat everywhere with the most marvellous assurance they never fail to add the following comment as a sort of glory be to the father if all men were equal nobody would work this anthem is sung with variations if all were masters nobody would obey if nobody were rich who would employ the poor and if nobody were poor who would labour for the rich but let us have done with the invective we have better arguments at our command if i show that property itself is impossible that it is property which is a contradiction a chimera a utopia and if i show it no longer by metaphysics and jurisprudence but by figures equations and calculations imagine the fright of the astounded proprietor and you reader what do you think of the retort numbers govern the world mundum regunt numeri this proverb applies as aptly to the moral and political as to the sidereal and molecular world the elements of justice are identical with those of algebra legislation and government are simply the arts of classifying and balancing powers all jurisprudence falls within the rules of arithmetic this chapter and the next will serve to lay the foundations of this extraordinary doctrine then will be unfolded to the reader's vision an immense and novel career then shall we commence to see in numerical relations the synthetic unity of philosophy and the sciences and filled with admiration and enthusiasm for this profound and majestic simplicity of nature we shall shout with the apostle yes the eternal has made all things by number weight and measure we shall understand not only that equality of conditions is impossible but that all else is impossible that this seeming impossibility which we charge upon it arises from the fact that we always think of it in connection either with the proprietary or the communistic regime political systems equally irreconcilable with human nature we shall see finally that inequality is constantly being realized without our knowledge even at the very moment when we are pronouncing it incapable of realization that the time draws near when without any effort or even wish of ours we shall have it universally established that with it in it and by it the natural and true political order must make itself manifest it has been said in speaking of the blindness and obstinacy of the passions that if man had anything to gain by denying the truths of arithmetic he would find some means of unsettling their certainty here is an opportunity to try this curious experiment 
I attack property no longer with its own maxims, but with arithmetic. Let the proprietors prepare to verify my figures, for, if unfortunately for them, the figures prove accurate, the proprietors are lost. Improving the impossibility of property, I complete the proof of its injustice. In fact, that which is just must be useful. That which is useful must be true. That which is true must be possible. Therefore, everything which is impossible is untrue, useless, unjust. Then, a priori, we may judge of the justice of anything by its possibility, so that if the thing were absolutely impossible, it would be absolutely unjust. Property is physically and mathematically impossible. Demonstration. Axiom. Property is the right of increase claimed by the proprietor over anything which he has stamped as his own. This proposition is purely an axiom because, one, it is not a definition, since it does not express all that is included in the right of property, the right of sale, of exchange, of gift, the right to transform, to alter, to consume, to destroy, to use and abuse, etc. All these rights are so many different powers of property, which we may consider separately, but which we disregard here, that we may devote all our attention to this single one, the right of increase. 2. It is universally admitted. No one can deny it without denying the facts, without being instantly belied by universal custom. 3. It is self-evident, since property is always accompanied, either actually or potentially, by the fact which this axiom expresses, and through this fact, mainly, property manifests, establishes and asserts itself. 4. Finally, its negation involves a contradiction. The right of increase is really an inherent right, so essential a part of property that, in its absence, property is null and void. Observations. Increase receives different names according to the thing by which it is yielded. If by land, farm rent. If by houses and furniture, rent. If by life investments, revenue. If by money, interest. If by exchange, advantage gain, profit, three things which must not be confounded with the wages or legitimate price of labour. Increase, a sort of royal prerogative of tangible and consumable homage, is due to the proprietor on account of his nominal and metaphysical occupancy. His seal is set upon the thing, that is enough to prevent anyone else from occupying it without his permission. This permission to use his things the proprietor may, if he chooses, freely grant. Commonly, he sells it. This sale is really a stellionate and an extortion, but by the legal fiction of the right of property, this same sale, severely punished, we know not why, in other cases, is a source of profit and value to the proprietor. The amount demanded by the proprietor in payment for this permission is expressed in monetary terms by the dividend which the supposed product yields in nature, so that, by the right of increase, the proprietor reaps and does not plough, gleans and does not till, consumes and does not produce, enjoys and does not labour. Very different from the idols of the psalmist are the gods of property. The former had hands and felt not, the latter, on the contrary, manus habent et palpabunt, 
the right of increase is conferred in a very mysterious and supernatural manner the inauguration of a proprietor is accompanied by the awful ceremonies of an ancient initiation first comes the consecration of the article a consecration which makes known to all that they must offer up a suitable sacrifice to the proprietor whenever they wish by his permission obtained and signed to use his article second comes the anathema which prohibits except on the conditions aforesaid all persons from touching the article even in the proprietor's absence and pronounces every violator of property sacrilegious infamous amenable to the secular power and deserving of being handed over to it finally the dedication which enables the proprietor or patron saint the god chosen to watch over the article to inhabit it mentally like a divinity in his sanctuary by means of this dedication the substance of the article so to speak becomes converted into the person of the proprietor who is regarded as ever present in its form this is exactly the doctrine of the writers on jurisprudence property says tullier is a moral quality inherent in a thing an actual bond which fastens it to the proprietor and which cannot be broken save by his act locke humbly doubted whether god could make matter intelligent tullier asserts that the proprietor renders it moral how much does he lack of being a god these are by no means exaggerations property is the right of increase that is the power to produce without labor now to produce without labor is to make something from nothing in short to create surely it is no more difficult to do this than to moralize matter the jurists are right then in applying to proprietors this passage from the scriptures ego dixi dii estis et filii excelsi omnes i have said ye are gods and all of you are children of the most high property is the right of increase to us this axiom shall be like the name of the beast in the apocalypse a name in which is hidden the complete explanation of the whole mystery of the beast it was known that he should solve the mystery of this name would obtain a knowledge of the whole prophecy and would succeed in mastering the beast well by the most careful interpretation of our axiom we shall kill the sphinx of property starting from this eminently characteristic fact the right of increase we shall pursue the old serpent through his coils we shall count the murderous entwinings of this frightful tenia whose head with its thousand suckers is always hidden from the sword of its most violent enemies though abandoning to them immense fragments of its body it requires something more than courage to subdue this monster it was written that it should not die until a proletaire armed with the magic wand had fought with it corollaries one the amount of increase is proportional to the thing increased whatever be the rate of interest whether it rise to three five or ten per cent or fall to one half one fourth one tenth it does not matter the law of increase remains the same the law is as follows all capital the cash value of which can be estimated may be considered as a term in an arithmetical series which progresses in the ratio of one hundred and the revenue yielded by this capital as the corresponding term of another arithmetical series which progresses equal to the rate of interest 
thus a capital of five hundred francs being the fifth term of the arithmetical progression whose ratio is one hundred its revenue at three per cent will be indicated by the fifth term of the arithmetical progression whose ratio is three one hundred three two hundred six three hundred nine four hundred twelve five hundred fifteen an acquaintance with this sort of logarithms tables of which calculated to a very high degree are possessed by proprietors will give us the key to the most puzzling problems and cause us to experience a series of surprises by this logarithmic theory of the right of increase a piece of property together with its income may be defined as a number whose logarithm is equal to the sum of its units divided by one hundred and multiplied by the rate of interest for instance a house valued at one hundred thousand francs and leased at five per cent yields a revenue of five thousand francs according to the formula one hundred thousand times five divided by a hundred equals five thousand vice versa a piece of land which yields at two and a half per cent a revenue of three thousand francs is worth one hundred and twenty thousand francs according to this other formula three thousand times one hundred divided by two and a half equals one hundred and twenty thousand in the first case the ratio of the progression which marks the increase of interest is five in the second it is two and a half observation the forms of increase known as farm rent income and interest are paid annually rent is paid by the week the month or the year profits and gains are paid at the time of exchange thus the amount of increase is proportional both to the thing increased and the time during which it increases in other words usury grows like a cancer foenus serpit sicu cancer two the increase paid to the proprietor by the occupant is a dead loss to the latter for if the proprietor owed in exchange for the increase which he receives something more than the permission which he grants his right of property would not be perfect he would not possess jure optimo jure perfecto that is he would not be in reality a proprietor then all which passes from the hands of the occupant into those of the proprietor in the name of the increase and as the price of the permission to occupy is a permanent gain for the latter and a dead loss and an annihilation for the former to whom none of it will return save in the form of gift arms wages paid for his services or the price of merchandise which he has delivered in a word increase perishes so far as the borrower is concerned or to use the more energetic latin phrase res perit solventi three the right of increase oppresses the proprietor as well as the stranger the master of a thing as its proprietor levies a tax for the use of his property upon himself as its possessor equal to that which he would receive from a third party so that the capital bears interest in the hands of the capitalist as well as in those of the borrower and the commandite if indeed rather than accept a rent of five hundred francs for my apartment i prefer to occupy and enjoy it it is clear that i shall become my own debtor for a rent equal to that which i deny myself this principle is universally practised in business and is regarded as an axiom by economists manufacturers also 
who have the advantage of being proprietors of their floating capital, although they owe no interest to anyone, in calculating their profits, subtract from them not only their running expenses and the wages of their employees, but also the interest on their capital. For the same reason, money lenders retain in their own possession as little money as possible. For since all capital necessarily bears interest, if this interest is supplied by no one, it comes out of the capital, which is to that extent diminished. Thus, by the right of increase, capital eats itself up. This is, doubtless, the idea that Papinius intended to convey in the phrase as elegant as it is forcible, Farinus mordet solidam. I beg pardon for using Latin so frequently in discussing this subject. It is an homage which I pay to the most usurious nation that ever existed. First proposition. Property is impossible because it demands something for nothing. The discussion of this proposition covers the same ground as that of the origin of farm rent, which is so much debated by the economists. When I read the writings of the greater part of these men, I cannot avoid a feeling of contempt mingled with anger in view of this mass of nonsense in which the detestable vies with the absurd. It would be a repetition of the story of the elephant in the moon, were it not for the atrocity of the consequences. To seek a rational and legitimate origin of that which is and ever must be only robbery, extortion and plunder, that must be the height of the proprietor's folly, the last degree of bedevilment, into which minds otherwise judicious can be thrown by the perversity of selfishness a farmer says say is a wheat manufacturer who among other tools which serve him in modifying the material from which he makes the wheat employs one large tool which we call a field if he is not the proprietor of the field if he is only a tenant he pays the proprietor for the productive service of this tool the tenant is reimbursed by the purchaser, the latter by another, until the product reaches the consumer, who redeems the first payment, plus all the others, by means of which the product has at last come into his hands. Let us lay aside the subsequent payments by which the product reaches the consumer, and for the present pay attention only to the first one of all, the rent paid to the proprietor by the tenant. On what ground, we ask, is the proprietor entitled to this rent? According to Ricardo McCulloch and Mill, farm rent, properly speaking, is simply the excess of product of the most fertile land over that of lands of an inferior quality, so that farm rent is not demanded for the former until the increase of population renders necessary the cultivation of the latter. It is difficult to see any sense in this. How can a right to the land be based upon a difference in the quality of the land how can varieties of soil engender a principle of legislation and politics the reasoning is either so subtle or so stupid that the more i think of it the more bewildered i become suppose two pieces of land of equal area the one a capable of supporting ten thousand inhabitants the other b capable of supporting nine thousand only when owing to an increase in their number the inhabitants of a shall be forced to cultivate b the landed proprietors of a will exact from their tenants in a a rent proportional to the difference between ten and nine so say i think ricardo mcculloch and mill but if a supports as many inhabitants as it can that is 
if the inhabitants of a by our hypothesis have only just enough land to keep them alive how can they pay farm rent if they had gone no farther than to say that the difference in land has occasioned farm rent instead of caused it this observation would have taught us a valuable lesson namely that farm rent grew out of a desire for equality indeed if all men have an equal right to the possession of good land no one can be forced to cultivate bad land without indemnification farm rent according to ricardo mcculloch and mill would then have been a compensation for loss and hardship this system of practical equality is a bad one no doubt but it sprang from good intentions what argument can ricardo mcculloch and mill develop therefrom in favour of property their theory turns against themselves and strangles them malthus thinks that farm rent has its source in the power possessed by land of producing more than is necessary to supply the wants of the men who cultivate it i would ask malthus why successful labour should entitle the idle to a portion of the products but the worthy malthus is mistaken in regard to the fact yes land has the power of producing more than is needed by those who cultivate it if by cultivators is meant tenants only the tailor also makes more clothes than he wears and the cabinet-maker more furniture than he uses but since the various professions imply and sustain one another not only the farmer but the followers of all arts and trades even to the doctor and the school-teacher are and ought to be regarded as cultivators of the land malthus bases farm rent upon the principle of commerce now the fundamental law of commerce being equivalence of the products exchanged anything which destroys this equivalence violates the law there is an error in the estimate which needs to be corrected buchanan a commentator on smith regarded farm rent as the result of a monopoly and maintained that labor alone is productive consequently he thought that without this monopoly products would rise in price and he found no basis for farm rent save in the civil law this opinion is a corollary of that which makes the civil law the basis of property and why has the civil law which ought to be the written expression of justice authorized this monopoly whoever says monopoly necessarily excludes justice now to say that farm rent is a monopoly sanctioned by the law is to say that injustice is based on justice a contradiction in terms say answers buchanan that the proprietor is not a monopolist because a monopolist is one who does not increase the utility of the merchandise which passes through his hands how much does the proprietor increase the utility of his tenants products has he ploughed sowed reaped mowed winnowed weeded these are the processes by which the tenant and his employees increase the utility of the material which they consume for the purpose of reproduction the landed proprietor increases the utility of products by means of his implement the land this implement receives in one state and returns in another the materials of which wheat is composed the action of the land is a chemical process which so modifies the material that it multiplies it by destroying it the soil is then a producer of utility and when it the soil asks its pay in the form of profit or farm rent for its proprietor it at the same time gives something to the consumer in exchange for the amount 
which the consumer pays it it gives him a produced utility and it is the production of this utility which warrants us in calling land productive as well as labor let us clear up this matter the blacksmith who manufactures for the farmer implements of husbandry the wheelwright who makes him a cart the mason who builds his barn the carpenter the basket maker etc all of whom contribute to agricultural production by the tools which they provide are producers of utility consequently they are entitled to a part of the products undoubtedly says say but the land also is an implement whose service must be paid for then i admit that the land is an implement but who made it did the proprietor did he by the efficacious virtue of the right of property by this moral quality infused into the soil endow it with vigor and fertility exactly there lies the monopoly of the proprietor in the fact that though he did not make the implement he asks pay for its use when the creator shall present himself and claim farm rent we will consider the matter with him or even when the proprietor his pretended representative shall exhibit his power of attorney the proprietor's service i'd say is easy i admit it is a frank confession but we cannot disregard it without property one farmer would contend with another for the possession of a field without a proprietor and the field would remain uncultivated then the proprietor's business is to reconcile farmers by robbing them oh logic oh justice oh the marvellous wisdom of economists the proprietor if they are right is like perrin dandin who when summoned by two travellers to settle a dispute about an oyster opened it gobbled it and said to them the court awards you each a shell could anything worse be said of property will say tell us why the same farmers who if there were no proprietors would contend with each other for possession of the soil do not contend today with the proprietors for this possession obviously because they think them legitimate possessors and because their respect for even an imaginary right exceeds their avarice i proved in chapter two that possession is sufficient without property to maintain social order would it be more difficult then to reconcile possessors without masters than tenants controlled by proprietors would laboring men who respect much to their own detriment the pretended rights of the idler violate the natural rights of the producer and the manufacturer what if the husbandman forfeited his right to the land as soon as he ceased to occupy it would he become more covetous and would the impossibility of demanding increase of taxing another's labor be a source of quarrels and lawsuits the economists use singular logic but we are not yet through admit that the proprietor is the legitimate master of the land the land is an instrument of production they say that is true but when changing the noun into an adjective they alter the phrase thus the land is a productive instrument they make a wicked blunder according to quesnay and the early economists all production comes from the land smith ricardo and de tracy on the contrary say that labor is the sole agent of production say and most of his successors teach that both land and labor and capital are productive the latter constitute the eclectic school of political economy 
the truth is that neither land nor labor nor capital is productive production results from the cooperation of these three equally necessary elements which taken separately are equally sterile political economy indeed treats of the production distribution and consumption of wealth or values but of what values of the values produced by human industry that is of the changes made in matter by man that he may appropriate it to his own use and not at all of nature's spontaneous productions man's labor consists in a simple laying on of hands when he has taken that trouble he has produced a value until then the salt of the sea the water of the springs the grass of the fields and the trees of the forests are to him as if they were not the sea without the fisherman and his line supplies no fish the forest without the woodcutter and his axe furnishes neither fuel nor timber the meadow without the mower yields neither hay nor aftermath nature is a vast mass of material to be cultivated and converted into products but nature produces nothing for herself in the economical sense her products in their relation to man are not yet products capital tools and machinery are likewise unproductive the hammer and the anvil without the blacksmith and the iron do not forge the mill without the miller and the grain does not grind etc bring tools and raw material together place a plough and some seed on fertile soil enter a smithy light the fire and shut up the shop you will produce nothing the following remark was made by an economist who possessed more good sense than most of his fellows say credits capital with an active part unwarranted by its nature left to itself it is an idle tool j Jos, political economy finally labor and capital together when unfortunately combined produce nothing plough a sandy desert beat the water of the rivers pass type through a sieve you will get neither wheat nor fish nor books your trouble will be as fruitless as was the immense labor of the army of Xerxes who as Herodotus says with his three million soldiers scourged the Hellespont for 24 hours as a punishment for having broken and scattered the pontoon bridge which the great king had thrown across it tools and capital land and labor considered individually and abstractly are not literally speaking productive the proprietor who asks to be rewarded for the use of a tool or the productive power of his land takes for granted then that which is radically false namely that capital produces by its own effort and in taking pay for this imaginary product he literally receives something for nothing objection but if the blacksmith the wheelwright all manufacturers in short have a right to the products in return for the implements which they furnish and if land is an implement of production why does not this implement entitle its proprietor be his claim real or imaginary to a portion of the products as in the case of the manufacturers of ploughs and wagons reply here we touch the heart of the question the mystery of property which we must clear up if we would understand anything of the strange effects of the right of increase he who manufactures or repairs the farmer's tools receives the price once either at the time of delivery or in several payments and when this price is once paid to the manufacturer 
the tools which he has delivered belong to him no more never does he claim double payment for the same tool or the same job of repairs if he annually shares in the products of the farmer it is owing to the fact that he annually makes something for the farmer the proprietor on the contrary does not yield his implement eternally he is paid for it eternally he keeps it in fact the rent received by the proprietor is not intended to defray the expense of maintaining and repairing the implement this expense is charged to the borrower and does not concern the proprietor except as he is interested in the preservation of the article if he takes it upon himself to attend to the repairs he takes care that the money which he expends for this purpose is repaid this rent does not represent the product of the implement since of itself the implement produces nothing we have just proved this and we shall prove it more clearly still by its consequences finally this rent does not represent the participation of the proprietor in the production since this participation could consist like that of the blacksmith and the wheelwright only in the surrender of the whole or a part of his implement in which case he would cease to be its proprietor which would involve a contradiction in the idea of property then between the proprietor and his tenant there is no exchange either of values or services then as our axiom says farm rent is a real increase an extortion based solely upon fraud and violence on the one hand and weakness and ignorance upon the other products say the economists are bought only by products the maxim is property's condemnation the proprietor producing neither by his own labor nor by his implement and receiving products in exchange for nothing is either a parasite or a thief then if property can exist only as a right property is impossible corollaries one the republican constitution of seventeen ninety three which defined property as the right to enjoy the fruit of one's labor was grossly mistaken it should have said property is the right to enjoy and dispose at will of another's goods the fruit of another's industry and labor two every possessor of lands houses furniture machinery tools money etc who lends a thing for a price exceeding the cost of repairs the repairs being charged to the lender and representing products which he exchanges for other products is guilty of swindling and extortion in short all rent received nominally as damages but really as payment for a loan is an act of property a robbery historical comment the tax which a victorious nation levies upon a conquered nation is genuine farm rent the seigneurial rights abolished by the revolution of 1789 tithes mortmain statute labor etc were different forms of the rights of property and they who under the titles of nobles seigneurs prebendaries etc enjoyed these rights were neither more nor less than proprietors to defend property today is to condemn the revolution second proposition property is impossible because wherever it exists production costs more than it is worth the preceding proposition was legislative in its nature this one is economical it serves to prove that property which originates in violence results in waste production says say is exchange on a large scale to render the exchange productive the value of the whole amount of service must be balanced by the value of the product 
if this condition is not complied with the exchange is unequal the producer gives more than he receives now value being necessarily based upon utility it follows that every useless product is necessarily valueless that it cannot be exchanged and consequently that it cannot be given in payment for productive services then though production may equal consumption it never can exceed it for there is no real production save where there is a production of utility and there is no utility save where there is a possibility of consumption thus so much of every product as is rendered by excessive abundance inconsumable becomes useless valueless unexchangeable consequently unfit to be given in payment for anything whatever and so is no longer a product consumption on the other hand to be legitimate to be true consumption must be reproductive of utility for if it is unproductive the products which it destroys are cancelled values things produced at a pure loss a state of things which causes products to depreciate in value man has the power to destroy but he consumes only that which he reproduces under a right system of economy there is then an equation between production and consumption these points established let us suppose a community of one thousand families enclosed in a territory of a given circumference and deprived of foreign intercourse let this community represent the human race which scattered over the face of the earth is really isolated in fact the difference between a community and the human race being only a numerical one the economical results will be absolutely the same in each case suppose then that these thousand families devoting themselves exclusively to wheat culture are obliged to pay to one hundred individuals chosen from the mass an annual revenue of ten percent on their product is it clear that in such a case the right of increase is equivalent to a tax levied in advance upon social production of what use is this tax it cannot be levied to supply the community with provisions for between that and farm rent there is nothing in common nor to pay for services and products for the proprietors laboring like the others have labored only for themselves finally this tax is of no use to its recipients who having harvested wheat enough for their own consumption and not being able in a society without commerce and manufactures to procure anything else in exchange for it thereby lose the advantage of their income in such a society one-tenth of the product being inconsumable one-tenth of the labor goes unpaid production costs more than it is worth now change three hundred of our wheat producers into artisans of all kinds one hundred gardeners and wine growers sixty shoemakers and tailors fifty carpenters and blacksmiths eighty of various professions and that nothing may be lacking seven schoolmasters one mayor one judge one priest each industry furnishes the whole community with its special product now the total production being one thousand each laborer's consumption is one namely wheat meat and grain 0.7 wine and vegetables 0.1 shoes and clothing 0.06 ironwork and furniture 0.05 sundries 0.08 instruction 0.007 administration 0.002 mass 0.001
total one but the community owes a revenue of ten per cent and it matters little whether the farmers alone pay it or all the laborers are responsible for it the result is the same the farmer raises the price of his products in proportion to his share of the debt and other laborers follow his example then after some fluctuations equilibrium is established and all pay nearly the same amount of the revenue it would be a grave error to assume that in a nation none but farmers pay farm rent the whole nation pays it i say then that by this tax of ten per cent each laborer's consumption is reduced as follows wheat zero point six three wine and vegetables zero point zero nine clothing and shoes zero point zero five four furniture and ironwork zero point zero four five other products zero point zero seven two schooling zero point zero zero six three administration zero point zero zero one eight mass zero point zero 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 nine total zero point nine the laborer has produced one he consumes only zero point nine he loses then one tenth of the price of his labor his production still costs more than it is worth on the other hand the tenth received by the proprietors is no less a waste for being laborers themselves they like the others possess in the nine-tenths of their product the wherewithal to live they want for nothing why should they wish their proportion of bread wine meat clothes shelter etc to be doubted if they can neither consume nor exchange them then farm rent with them as with the rest of the laborers is a waste and perishes in their hands extend the hypothesis increase the number and variety of the products you still have the same result hitherto we have considered the proprietor as taking part in the production not only as say says by the use of his instrument but in an effective manner and by the labor of his hands now it is easy to see that under such circumstances property will never exist what happens the proprietor an essentially libidinous animal without virtue or shame is not satisfied with an orderly and disciplined life he loves property because it enables him to do at leisure what he pleases and when he pleases having obtained the means of life he gives himself up to trivialities and indolence he enjoys he fritters away his time he goes in quest of curiosities and novel sensations property to enjoy itself has to abandon ordinary life and busy itself in luxurious occupations and unclean enjoyments instead of giving up a farm rent which is perishing in their hands and thus lightening the labor of the community one hundred proprietors prefer to rest in consequence of this withdrawal the absolute production being diminished by one hundred while the consumption remains the same production and consumption seem to balance but in the first place since the proprietors no longer labor their consumption is according to economical principles unproductive consequently the previous condition of the community when the labor of one hundred was rewarded by no products is superseded by one in which the products of one hundred are consumed without labor the deficit is always the same whichever the column of the account in which it is expressed either the maxims of political economy are false or else property which contradicts them is impossible the economists regarding all unproductive consumption as an evil 
as a robbery of the human race never failed to exhort proprietors to moderation labor and economy they preached to them the necessity of making themselves useful of remunerating production for that which they received from it they launched the most terrible curses against luxury and laziness very beautiful morality surely it is a pity that it lacks common sense the proprietor who labors or as the economists say who makes himself useful is paid for his labor and utility is he therefore any the less idle as concerns the property which he does not use and from which he receives an income his condition whatever he may do is an unproductive and felonious one he cannot cease to waste and destroy without ceasing to be a proprietor but this is only the least of the evils which property engenders society has to maintain some idle people whether or no it will always have the blind the maimed the insane and the idiotic it can easily support a few sluggards at this point the impossibilities thicken and become complicated End of section 13 Chapter 4 Part 1